You are listening to the Tove podcast. Today on the Tove podcast, we'll explore sloppy joes and then dive into the four C's to success. I'm glad you've joined us for this 74th episode of the Tove podcast. You are listening to the Tove podcast. Well, welcome back to the Tove Podcast. I'm Levi Hazen, host of the Tove Podcast, and I have the privilege of serving as the Executive Director of Life and Messiah International. At Life and Messiah, we are laser-focused on sharing God's heart for the Jewish people through evangelism, discipleship, and sound exegetical Bible teaching. We've been doing so since 1887. You can learn more about the work we're doing around the world at lifeinmessiah.org. Well, I'd like to thank those of you who uh, recently sent us messages of encouragement. Seems a number of you enjoyed our three-part series on the book of Nahum. Today, we move on from Nahum as we explore a specific episode in David's life found in 1 Chronicles. I've been recently rereading 1 Chronicles And something caught my attention that I want to share with you, and I hope it'll be a good reminder for you as it has been for me. It is a message that we can apply to our lives today. However, before we get into 1 Chronicles, we're going to talk about sloppy joes. Now, what is a sloppy joe? Obviously, what comes to most of our minds is a good-tasting sandwich. However, the sloppy joe I'm referring to is any person who quotes scripture out of context. Now, this person might be a Bible teacher like myself, could be a pastor, a worship leader, a televangelist, or even an executive director. Most often, it's a friend with a well-meaning but way-off Facebook post. Today, I want to give you some indicators that'll help you with Bible interpretation. Now, as we've mentioned many times on the Tove podcast, The historical background of a passage, the context of any particular passage, the original language of the words being used in a passage, and the author's intent are vital when interpreting and applying a passage. You see, any passage taken out of context is simply a pretext, a pretext for any theological point or principle that the sloppy Joe wants to make. In fact, there are a number of cults who use the same Bible as me and you, but they use certain verses or passages taken out of their context so that they can easily twist the scriptures to make them say what they want them to say, oftentimes leading many others astray. Unfortunately, this not only happens in cults, It happens far too often in evangelical circles. For some reason, we think it's okay to butcher a verse's original meaning as long as it fits the evangelical framework, as long as we don't go beyond specific boundaries of our evangelical beliefs, it's okay to do with the passage what we want. It's as if we reason, if it makes us feel good, let's use it. 
or if it speaks of a certain principle that we hold dear as evangelicals, let's quote it, regardless of the context of the passage. Friends, we're actually doing ourselves a disservice by doing this. Why is it not okay for cults to do it, but completely okay for an evangelical church to do it, provided they stay within certain boundaries that are acceptable to us? Let me provide an example. Zechariah 13, verse 6, says the following, quote, If someone asks him, What are these wounds on your chest? Then he will answer, I received the wounds in the house of my friends. End quote. Now, this verse, when taken out of context, sounds like it could be about the Messiah. In fact, some have quoted it and actually taught that it points to the Messiah as a proof text that he would be wounded by his own people. However, when we read Zechariah 13.6 in its fuller context, we learn something entirely different. Let's just begin in verse 1 of chapter 13. Quote, On that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, I will erase the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. I will remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. Now, just in the first three verses, we can see here that Zechariah is prophesying about a glorious future when God will cleanse Israel, when God will remove sin and impurity. Verse 3, if a man still prophesies, his father and his mother who bore him will say to him, you cannot remain alive because you have spoken falsely in the name of Yahweh. So someone who speaks falsely is called a false prophet. When he prophesies, his father and his mother who bore him will pierce him through. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. Verse 5, he will say, I am not a prophet. I work the land for a man purchased me as a servant since my youth. Now we get to verse 6 in context. If someone asks him, what are these wounds on your chest? Then he will answer, I received the wounds in the house of my friends. End quote. This verse is not only not about the Messiah, it's actually about a false prophet. What a horrible thing it would be to apply this verse to the Messiah. This is a prime example of sloppy Joe. Now, let's look at another far too popular example of sloppy Joe. And that is Jeremiah 29.11. Now, my goal is not to offend anyone in using this passage as an example. My goal is to simply point out just how prevalent and culturally acceptable it is to take passages out of their original context. Jeremiah 29.11 states, For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. End quote. Now that's a great verse. Does God know our future? Absolutely. We know that from other passages as well. But most of us, when we read Jeremiah 29.11, simply have no idea of the surrounding context of the passage. 
Who was Jeremiah 29.11 written to? What was the historical context of it being delivered? What was God's intent as he inspired Jeremiah to write it? Are we really promised as individual believers that God does not plan for, quote, disaster? What about the current situation of COVID-19 and the pandemic? Seems like a disaster for many believers. I know of believers who have been widowed due to the pandemic. What about a cancer diagnosis followed by the death of a young person? That seems like disaster for the parents for me. Or a broken marriage caused by a spouse who wandered into lust. How do we even apply this verse at an individual level? And if it is for individuals or families, doesn't it contradict the words of Jesus in John 16, 33? When Jesus said quite boldly, quote, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. End quote. So we're told outright by Jesus that we're going to have suffering in this world. I don't see John 16.33 posted on the walls of homes very often. It's a reality check that we'll have suffering, but also that we can take hope in spite of it because Jesus offers us peace. So, what is the background of Jeremiah 29.11? Well, first off, the whole book of Jeremiah was written over the course of many years by Jeremiah. The primary audience was Judah and Jerusalem. In its final form, the book addressed the remnants of Israel in captivity. More specifically, Jeremiah 29 verses 10 through 19 say the following. For this is what the Lord says, When seventy years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. In other words, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is telling Israel somewhere at the beginning of their captivity that he's eventually going to restore them after 70 years. In fact, Daniel the prophet read this, and that's how Daniel knew that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. Verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. You see, in its context, Jeremiah 29.11 is speaking to people who have just been absolutely decimated. Their temple, their city, has been destroyed by the way more powerful Babylonians. Many of them have lost friends and family members, and they've been taken from their homeland and brought to Babylon. And so essentially what God is communicating through Jeremiah is that these folks would be exiled from their homeland in a foreign land full of idolatrous worship for 70 years. So if you were reading Jeremiah the prophet, if you came across this message and you're at year 10 of captivity, I think there's a good chance you're never going to make it home. But what Jeremiah is saying here is to the larger nation of Israel, to the remnant of Israel more specifically saying, I have plans for you. I have a future for you. I am going to bring you back to the land of Israel. Verse 12, you'll call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Verse 13, you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, this is the Lord's declaration, and I will restore your fortunes. I'll gather you from the nations and the places where I've banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place I deported you from. The prophet Jeremiah goes on and he says, You've said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. But this is what the Lord says concerning the king sitting on David's throne and concerning all the people living in this city. That is, concerning your brothers who did not go with you into exile. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I am about to send against them sword, famine, and plague, and will make them like rotten figs that are inedible because they are so bad. I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and plague. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and a desolation, an object of scorn, and a disgrace among all the nations where I have banished them. I will do this because they have not listened to my words. This is the Lord's declaration that I sent to them with my servants, the prophets, time and time again, and you too have not listened. This is the Lord's declaration. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles. I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to Ahab, son of Kaliah, and to Zedekiah, son of Messiah. The ones prophesying a lie to you in my name, I am about to hand them over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will kill them before your very eyes. Based on what happens to them, all the exiles of Judah who were in Babylon will create a curse that says, May the Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have committed an outrage in Israel by committing adultery with their neighbor's wives and have spoken a lie in my name, which I did not command them. I am he who knows, and I am a witness. This is the Lord's declaration. So my question is, why quote Jeremiah 29.11 and not Jeremiah verse 18, for example, which says, I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and plague. I'll make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, I think I know why. Jeremiah 29.11 makes us feel good. So my point in wrapping up this section is this. Does God know our future? Absolutely. Does God have good plans for you? Well, it depends on how we define good. If we view good as being comfortable, if we view good as being trouble-free, then perhaps not. We're not promised that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus said, in this world you're going to have trouble. In this world you're going to have suffering. The good that is specifically being talked about in Jeremiah 29, 11, First of all, it is a far-off good because they have to go through a lot of horrible stuff in captivity before they get to be reconciled to the land. Is God good? Absolutely God is good. Is He gracious? Absolutely God is gracious. But we can learn those things from other passages. We learn those things from the character of God. And to take a verse and apply it completely out of context and say, God has good planned for me. Again, we just want to make sure that we define what it means to have good planned for us. If good, in our definition, has the possibility of martyrdom, in our estimation, has the possibility of encompassing suffering and sickness and trials so that the Lord might test our faith, then yeah, God might have good planned for you. But too often... We equate good with trouble-free, stress-free, worry-free, death-free, sick-free. 
And then when those horrible things happen, we question the scriptures and say, wait a second, I thought God had all this good planned for me. Wait a second, I thought God had all this wealth planned for me. Why am I on the edge of financial ruin? And it's at that point that for some believers, their faith collapses because they point to specific Bible verses that they leaned upon, that they rested on as being about them individually, only to find out that the Bible actually didn't promise that. More often, a lot of us hear a televangelist or some kind of a celebrity preacher promising us that if we give our lives over to Jesus, man, we're going to be worry-free and our banks are going to be full of money. This, again, is a disservice to both believers and the lost. So when we come back on the Tove podcast, we're going to dive into a passage. We're going to explore the context. We're going to observe it. And we're going to make an application because my whole point isn't to say that we should never apply the text because it was given to other authors. We know from the New Testament that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. But all Scripture comes to us with a context. All Scripture comes to us and needs to be rightly handled. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dive into the seas to success and leave Sloppy Joe behind on the Tove Podcast. Since 1887, Life in Messiah has helped Christians understand the Jewish roots of our faith and God's ongoing commitment to His people. We teach that anti-Semitism is inconsistent with biblical faith, and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which includes her spiritual renewal as well as physical safety. In all we do, our priority is to share the gospel message. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or at lifeinmessiah.org. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Well, as we leave Sloppy Joe behind, we're going to dive into First Chronicles. Let's talk a little bit about the historical context and the authorship of First Chronicles here. First of all, this is a post-exilic work. Okay, you already know this, but the Bible is not in chronological order. That doesn't mean we should make it in chronological order. It just means we have to be careful with the text because it's not in chronological order as oftentimes our Western minds would want us to have it. So this work was written after the exile. That, that's what post-exilic means. And the author is likely Ezra. And Ezra is writing from a post-exilic perspective. What I mean is that he already knows the rise and fall of David and Solomon's kingdom. Ezra knows. David was not the promised Messiah. Solomon was not the promised Messiah. And every other king failed at being a righteous Messiah, at being a righteous king. There were certainly some good kings, some very wicked, evil kings. None of them fulfilled a role of being King Messiah. And Ezra knows this as he talks about David and Solomon. He knows the splintering of David's family, the waywardness of Solomon's heart, the dividing of the land into two kingdoms, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. He knows the civil war and idolatry that have plagued his people for years as he writes this historical narrative. Ezra knows about the Babylonian destruction of Solomon's glorious temple. He knows about the heroics of Daniel the prophet and the return of the captives back to Jerusalem. 
In knowing all that history, God commissions Ezra to write a historical narrative that not only provides an account of how God's people arrived where they were in Ezra's day, but also provides them with principles to make sure they stay faithful to God going forward. Another important point of First and Second Chronicles is to point out the reality that God's chosen Messiah, this righteous king, has not yet arrived on the scene. Israel is not where God told Abraham they would eventually be. The promises to Abraham and his descendants have not yet been realized. And therefore, all of these things are yet future. In other words, the audience of First and Second Chronicles needs to keep looking forward to this righteous king, keep looking forward to the fulfillment of these promises that God has made to Abraham and his descendants. So we're going to pick up in First Chronicles 13. Saul has recently been killed by the Philistines. David has just taken control of Jebus, a.k.a. the city of David. And a great army is coming together as David begins his journey as the new king of Israel. 1 Chronicles 13, verse 1 says this, David consulted with all of his leaders, the commanders of hundreds and the commanders of thousands. Then he said to the whole assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and this is from the Lord our God, let us spread out and send the message to the rest of our relatives in all the districts of Israel, including the priests and Levites in their cities with pasture lands, that they should gather together with us. Then let us bring back the ark of our God. Now, that's the mission here. David realizes that the ark of God is still in a different city other than the city of David, and his mission is to bring it back to the city of David and give it a proper dwelling place. And David says, Let us bring back the ark of our God, for we did not inquire of him in Saul's days. Now, that's true. In fact, right before Saul was killed, he was inquiring of a medium, a spiritist, trying to consult the dead when he should have been consulting the Lord. Verse 4, So since this proposal seemed right to all the people, the whole assembly agreed to do it. Now, I think we're going to find it quite ironic here that David says, Let's bring back the ark of God, for we did not inquire of him in Saul's days. Remember that point. Verse 5, So David assembled all Israel, from the Shehor of Egypt to the entrance of Hamat, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. Now, this is uh, located just outside of Jerusalem, in or right near a little town called Abu Ghosh. Verse 6, David and all Israel went to Baalah, that is Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to take the ark of God from there, which is called by the name of the Lord who dwells between the cherubim. At Abinadab's house, they set the ark of God on a new cart. Uzzah and Ahio were guiding the cart. Okay, so they, see, they set out on this mission. Seems like a good mission. David's intention is to glorify the Lord with this mission. We get to verse 8. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to Chidon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to hold the ark because the oxen had stumbled. Verse 10, Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him dead because he had reached out to the ark. So he died there in the presence of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named the place Outburst Against Uzzah as it is still named today. 
David feared God that day and said, How can I ever bring the ark of God to me? So David did not move the ark of God home to the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of God remained with Obed-Edom's family in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed his family and all that he had. Now that brings us to chapter 14, and what we see there is really God's blessings on David, including a military victory over the Philistines. And although it's easy to miss, we read an important principle in verse 10 that we did not read in chapter 13. Let me start in verse 8. It says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, they all went in search of David. When David heard of this, he went out to face them. Now the Philistines had come and raided in the valley of Rephaim. Verse 10 is key here. So David inquired of God, Should I go to war against the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And the Lord replies, Go ahead, I'll hand them over to you. And David gains a military victory. But you notice in verse 10 there, we read, David inquired of God, and we did not get that in chapter 13 when David sought out to fulfill the mission of moving the ark. Instead, it says that David consulted with all the leaders, with all the people, and since they all said, hey, this seems good to us, they went ahead with the mission, which was a failed mission. Not only did they not get the ark back to the place they wanted, but someone died. Now, that brings us to chapter 15. Chapter 15 is where we get a confession out of David, which sheds light on the whole story here. We'll start in verse 11. It says, David summoned the priests Zadok and Abiathar, and the Levites Uriel, Asiah, Yoel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Amminadab. Verse 12, he said to them, You are the heads of the Levite families. You and your relatives must consecrate yourselves so that you may bring back the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For the Lord our God burst out in anger against us because you Levites were not with us the first time. And an amazing admission here and something we can all learn from from David. He says, For we did not inquire of him about the proper procedures. You see, when they first set out for this mission, David inquired of the people. And here he tells us, Maybe we should have inquired of the Lord first. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the Ark of the Lord God of Israel. Then the Levites carried the Ark of God the way Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord, on their shoulders with the poles. If David would have gone back and read Numbers chapter 4, he would have learned the proper procedures for carrying the Ark of God. Instead, David failed to consult the text. And that's our first C that we want to emphasize. Before we make decisions, whether it's a big mission or a really small mission, whether we think the decision is just mundane or whether we think it should be consecrated to prayer, why not just consult the text and consult the Lord first? In our own situations, individually, in our marriages, It is vital that we first consult the Lord. We first consult His Word to see if God speaks to our specific situations. Do we think it would be a good idea to have an affair? Well, God tells us in His Word, no, it's not a good idea. Do we think it'd be a good idea to rob a bank? Well, God tells us, no, don't be robbing people. Do we think it'd be a good idea to be mean to this person? Well, God tells us, no, we better treat others how we want to be treated. 
and on and on and on. The Word of God provides a multitude of answers for our situations. And sometimes, though, the Word of God does not speak specifically to our situation. Should I move to this city and take this new job? The text does not speak to your specific situation. However, that's where we can go to the Lord in prayer. And in prayer, we can ask the Lord to lead us. And God oftentimes leads us by His Spirit, through open or closed doors, or various other ways. But we must take the first step in consulting the Lord. A failure to consult the Lord is tantamount to saying, I know what's best, and I don't need God's help with this decision. It really is an example of trusting in ourselves when we do that. We trust in our own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all our heart, and do not rely on your own understanding. Think about Him in all our ways, and He will guide you on the right paths. Don't consider yourself to be wise. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, after we've consulted the Lord, we need to determine whether there's a change of course needed. And that's the second C here. The first consult, the second change. Sometimes we need to change our behavior after consulting God in His Word. Are we currently doing something that we see in Scripture is not okay to do for a believer? Guess what? God's Word's not going to change. Therefore, we need to change our behavior. And the third thing we need to do is conform. We need to conform our thoughts. We need to conform our understanding to what God's Word says. Does God's Word teach us something about sexuality that is completely different than what our culture says about sexuality? Guess what? God's Word's not going to change. God is not going to change His Word because of a particular country's cultural feelings about it. He's been through this over and over again through the ages. Cultures, countries, peoples rise and fall. Fads come and go. God's Word remains the same and is eternal. Does God's Word teach us that we should not be doing this or that activity? It's our responsibility to conform our attitudes and hearts in such a way that they align with God's Word, not the other way around. And we may not always understand the why of God's Word. Why does God say this and not say that? Well, we may never know this side of heaven. But not knowing the why is no reason to disobey God's instruction. Psalm 119, 1-8 teaches us, How happy are those whose way is blameless, who live according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep His decrees and seek Him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They follow His ways. You have commanded that your precepts be diligently kept. If only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I think about all your commands. I will praise you with a sincere heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Never abandon me. And finally, after we've consulted, and if need be, after we've changed and conformed, finally, what we need to do is resolve ourselves that God is right about this issue or that issue and that I'm in the wrong. And then we must carry out 
what God's Word says or what His Spirit has led us to. We must act. Just as David ended up employing the right people to carry the ark on his second try at the mission, so we must carry on with right actions after we've consulted the Lord through Bible reading or prayer. To consult the Lord and then refuse to follow through is sin. As James says in chapter 1, quote, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but one who does good works, this person will be blessed in what he does. So, by way of summary, watch out for sloppy joes, and don't be a sloppy joe yourself. Number two, we need to consult the Lord by reading the Bible, by going to Him in prayer, before we make any decisions. After we've consulted the Lord, we need to change or conform our behavior and understanding to what God says. And then finally, after we've consulted and conformed, we need to carry out and actually be doers of the Word. Thanks for joining us today on the Tove Podcast. I hope this episode has been edifying to you. If it has been, please pass it on to a friend or family member. Perhaps they'll find it helpful as well. You can listen to previous episodes of the Tove Podcast by going to lifeinmessiah.org, tovepodcast.com, and find them anywhere else that you get your podcasts. May God bless you richly. Until next time, Shalom.